Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Today on the show, we have Daniela Mestanek-Young. She's an American author and speaker born into the religious cult, The Children of God. Daniela served as an intelligence officer in the U.S. Army for over six years, making the rank of captain. And she became one of the first women in the U.S. Army, in the history of the U.S. Army, to conduct deliberate ground combat operations when she volunteered to serve on a female engagement team. She's a recipient of the Presidential Volunteer Service Medal. Daniela lives with her husband and daughter in Maryland and is a candidate for a master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology from Harvard Extension School. Daniela's first book, Uncultured, a memoir of cults, war, and belonging, is being published by St. Martin's Press on September 20th, 2022, and is available for pre-order. Here's Daniela now. very happy to have Danielle on the show today. And she's going to be talking about a group that I have been dealing with just the fallout from since I think the late 80s, early 90s. So it's one that not enough people know about. And that's why it's very exciting that she's coming out with her story. And so Daniela, do you want to introduce yourself and then we'll start talking? Absolutely. So my complicated name is Daniela Mestanek-Young. Uh, And I am an author. I have written a book called Uncultured that will be coming soon about growing up in a religious cult and also being in the U.S. Army. And we'll get to that part later. Um, But I am a a U.S. Army veteran and a a two-time combat veteran, one of the first women that was doing ground combat when we were still experimenting with that. And way before that, I was born and raised as a third generation member of Children of God. So when you say, Rachel, you've been dealing with this since, you know, the 80s, the fallout of that, you know, my grandparents joined the cult. My great grandmother actually donated to David Berg, who was the prophet, one of his first pieces of property. And, you know, at that time, it was just they were so happy that their kids were getting involved in a religious group that seemed to be doing good. And that was, of course, how it all started. And then my mom was one of the teenagers who was born and raised in it. And so was I. And I was fortunately able to get away, escape, excommunicated. (laughs) There's a lot of different things to call it. Um, I got away from that life when I was 15 years old with zero babies, which was very, very helpful for me. Moved to America pretty much by myself with zero dollars and started putting life together, which is a huge culture shock when not even your mother knows what the real world is like, much less yourself. So, and it's interesting that you said that you came to America. So something that I think people might not know about this group is that they go all over the place and kind of missionize all over the place. And I think live in conditions a lot of the time that are very difficult One of the things that I remember from some of my first clients was also the amount of children working with a woman who was 40, I believe, who had eight children who had just left from Bangladesh 
to come back to America. And uh, she said they were living kind of in squalor there in a in a slum, as she put it, in the dirt. The children had no medical care. She had no medical care. And she had come from other places, some better, some worse, but all over the world and was shell-shocked from her whole experience and had sort of landed back on earth, as she put it, and wasn't quite sure how to help her children, how to start with them, because she remembers having a bit of a childhood outside of the group. So she had a little bit of a frame of reference of something to go back to, which I know that's something that juxtaposes her experience from yours. And I'd like to talk also about sort of the second generation, third generation people and how their their experiences are different. But also I remember her just saying to me, how do I help my kids know what's normal and what are social norms and what's okay in terms of how you're treated? And can you ask a question? I mean, sort of the basics, what are your rights? And the other thing that I was just going to say before I want to toss this over back to you is um, I remember working with a lot of people who had left the group who went into becoming strippers and sort of the sex trade. That's all they knew. And so that's how they knew kind of to make a living. And that's also how they felt sort of about their worth and without having boundaries set or being able to set boundaries, it felt like the only thing that they could do until, you know, we talked about other choices. And that there was also, there were two men I worked with who were suicidal because of not being able to protect their sisters and not being able to even protect their mothers from what was happening. So I think for the audience listening now, they're probably wondering what was happening, (laughs) right? So this is kind of leading up to this crescendo of what was particular about this group and actually about David Berg and what he thought was an okay way to have religion in the world. And it's so backward. And so I first want to start with how did your great grandmother meet him and end up giving him land? Yeah. So it was actually my grandfather that met the children of God. So my grandfather just graduated college and I want to say graduate school was a CPA, had a really bad LSD trip in, you know, the early seventies where he swears he met Satan. And the next day, as he was sitting in a park trying to figure out how to go on in life after meeting Satan, he met the children of God and he went off with them and he became immediately became a very senior person running the books for David Berg and still does. He is my grandfather is the chief financial officer of what is left of children of God. That's why that's why part of why the Mestinec name is important. His girlfriend at the time, who had always sort of been from the reports that we hear mentally troubled, went off with him to children of God. And the mother, my great grandmother reportedly was just so happy that somebody took her problem teenager off her hand. And again, sort of believe this was a good thing, right? So, you know, the the basic background is set in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, in California, where where Berg and his teenage kids start offering homeless hippies peanut butter sandwiches and talking about Jesus. And anyone that sort of knows anything about group programming and group norms and indoctrination and all of this fun stuff I'm studying in my master's program now 
can look at those original things and see that they were programming. But it seemed nice. It seemed lovely. All these people that were seeking for answers. And then what Berg did to set himself aside from all of the very many new religious movements that were springing up was, you know, very similar to how startups these days talk about finding their unique value proposition. Berg figured out like sex was his thing. And David Berg was a very, very messed up from childhood by his own parents. Man, he was an alcoholic. He was a failed preacher in his 50s, the son of a big evangelical revivalist. And so he was looking for his thing. And incest and pedophilia and messed up sex were always a part of him. And then he got a following. And, you know, it doesn't happen all at once, is is a pretty important part. And, you know, first they are just Christians, they're living in communes, they know it's the end of the world, and this man is their prophet. And they, they slowly start to accept everything. And then he slowly starts to drop in worse and worse beliefs. So, you know, the first thing he did was get rid of his wife and take up with his secretary and call her the old wife and the new wife and that God told him to do it. And when everyone accepted that, he could then go further. And then he could start essentially pimping out his new wife to other gentlemen to get money and favors and political support. And then when nobody was upset by that, then all of the women had to start doing it. So he turned all of the women pretty much in the children of God into prostitutes. And he didn't try to hide this. Like they called them heaven's harlots, hookers for Christ. And it was all based around this concept in the New Testament where Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. Mm -hmm. Right. So I remember the flirty fishing terminology. Yes, it was called flirty fishing. And, you know, it's an interesting, a lot of the the second generation will be like, well, you know, the younger generation didn't experience that. And, you know, we saw our mothers going out. And I mean, we had kids books that had a naked woman with a fish hook coming through her chest. And that was what we read growing up. So we all that impacted all of us. But, you know, it really it just all came down to he took this one thing and he said the Adam and Eve story is wrong. The way Christians interpreted it is distorting. Sex was not the original sin. You know, so he set himself against sort of evangelical purity culture. And he was like, sex wasn't the original sin. Disobeying God was the original sin. Sex is great. And so he set up this lovely thing for himself where disobeying God is the sin and I'm God's prophet. You have all already accepted that, given up everything else in your life. Now I'm going to tell you that sex was always fine. There's all these verses in the Bible that say love is important. Sex is love. Sex is fine. God loves children. And so when the first children started coming around, of which my, of whom my mother was one of them, um, I believe my, my mother was one of the first 10 children born into the children of God. And then when they started even when they were very young, you know, it was just like, okay, well, if sex is great and there are no rules, then it must be good for the children too. And it sort of became this whole world. And I, I call it pedophilia for God. Um, it, it really was a belief that, you know, we are trying to raise sexually liberated children and what it turned into for better or worse is our whole lives were about sex whether or not we were being touched, because some people were and some people weren't, but whole lives were about sex. You know, you mentioned the boys. I find it to also be true that from my experience of 
knowing survivors that the boys almost sometimes will struggle harder on the outside. And I have a lot of theories about that, but part of it is because I think everything about our childhood was abusive, as you mentioned. Um, And I actually compare it to growing up in religious prison camps. And so because we were a sex cult, that gets all the focus which also tends to mean like only the girls are allowed to be messed up and only the girls that have the worst stories are allowed to be messed up. And so I try to talk about it and write about it as, you know, we were little soldiers. We were, you know, this line in my book, I was born a soldier and we had no spontaneous moments of joy in our lives. And we grew up institutionalized and in very hard conditions, right? So Six-month-old babies were supposed to be spanked until their behavior got better. So we were essentially beaten every day from the age of six months old. We never had enough food. And of course, like very many other evangelical cultures, it was very big on, you got to be skinny, you got to be happy, you got to be pretty, you got to let Jesus shine through you. So very much behavior controlled all the time while we were also surviving you know, very inhumane uh, child abuse conditions. And then on top of that, we weren't allowed an education. So we did not go to school. We sort of pretended to do school, but it was mostly no schooling for a very long time. And uh, we had tons of kids, as you mentioned. So my mom got pregnant at 14 and had seven children by the time she was 30 and had eight children total. I have 20 five siblings that I know of because my father was also a much older man. And yeah, it was, it was all a part of Berg's plan and the people that ran the cult to, you know, be fruitful and multiply because you make your own new disciples. But then they also didn't really, uh, I think, learn to indoctrinate us. Right. So most of us that came up within it ended up getting away and ended up realizing that this was all wrong. What was interesting when you said about the mom who was trying to figure it out and help her kids figure it out is I feel like most of the adults that joined the cult still can't admit that it was it was a cult or that it was harmful and still really have a hard time seeing that their children are decimated from their experience growing up in there. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Sometimes, you know, when when you say that, People have a hard time looking at it. Sometimes they don't see it. Sometimes they don't want to see it. Sometimes it's just too much. I mean, they've already been through their own trauma. So needing to take on the fact that as a parent, you feel a certain sense of responsibility or guilt on top of it. If you're coming from a more fragile place because of what you've been through, it is hard to look at it. You can still find yourself justifying it in your mind as a defense mechanism. And then it leaves the children out in the cold, I think, and, and not being attended to. So I'm curious about sort of a day in the life. If you can give me a sense as a young kid, what would have happened while you were in Children of God, sort of from morning until evening, typically? So the first thing to say is, we, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but in the 70s, when things started heating up for cults in the US and there was the whole satanic panic going on, Jonestown, et cetera. Berg 
moved his followers all over the world. So he got, you know, very convenient revelation that we should be in developing nations on communes behind big walls, which is easy to do in places like the Philippines where I was born or Brazil where I spent most of my life. So, and then a day in my life, because I was also in the center of the leadership for most of my life because of who my family was and who we were connected to, which means... You know, everyone you talk to, of course, is going to give you different answers, but I grew up in these mega communes. You know, I would say average when I was about five or six, it was, you know, you sleep in dorms with other children. You wake up in the morning, you are not, you don't see your parents at all. You are herded, we called them broom shepherds, you know, but it was mostly 16 year old teenage girls that also grew up in the cult that were our teachers and were in charge of us and everything was standing in lines and really, really, really bad cafeteria food made by really poor people and whatever was sort of donated and left over. And I would say I got lucky that outside of these communes, I was in a beautiful, wonderful place like Brazil. So still had to get the experience of like tropical fruits and the language and some of that stuff. And then we were a workforce after that. We were essentially child labor. And so it was, you woke up, you ate, you did your hours of indoctrination at whatever age you were that we called devotions every morning. And then you started working and it depended, you know, everything was called a mission. So you were on cooking mission today or childcare mission today or scrubbing the walls or building more housing for people. And we were just labor all day until we were exhausted. A big part, I think, of our day was when you live with 50 to 100 to 150 adults, you never know what you're going to do that's going to step out of line that every adult in the commune has full beating privileges on you for. So I, you know, say in my book, I don't, I don't remember a single day of my childhood that I didn't get hit or, or beat by someone. Um, that was, you know, a, a pretty big part of it too. And then, you know, sometimes we had school, they were very big on pretending to the outside world that we were missionaries, that we were a religion. We had an entire doctrine called Deceivers Yet True, where we don't go to school and we don't care about education because the world's going to end, but the outside world that is eventually going to come in and persecute us and going to kill us like they killed all the kids in Waco you know, means we need to be on the defensive. And so, you know, at the age of five, I could read fluently out of the King James Bible and I could quote you all of our beliefs so that nobody would think kind of we were the little brainwashed kids, which almost interestingly enough becomes the cult is able to use stereotypes about cult members to avoid being seen as a cult and and having their children taken away. And finally, at the end of the day, we were allowed to see our parents usually for an hour a day that included dinner and like 30 minutes to an hour after dinner of parent time. And then we went back to our dorms and it started all over and that was our lives. And there was a lot of, lot of sexual abuse, obviously tucked in. And I think by the time I was growing up, it was quote unquote, no longer allowed. So when my mom was actually the catalyst, when she got pregnant at 14 from one of Berg's senior lieutenants, who was a 49-year-old man, who was about a decade older than her own father, 
And all of a sudden it was like, whoa, what are we going to do with this? Daniela, born in 1987 to a 15-year-old is like clearly, right? If the cops ever got me in a raid, that was a very clear signal that someone's abusing the children. And so they started sort of backpedaling and trying to put in safeties. For example, though, one of the safeties was when the girls start menstruating, you can no longer have intercourse with them until they're 16. So these are the kind of safeties that the sex cult will put in for people. And so when I was growing up, it was almost a situation of where it was no longer allowed. Like there had been rules that said sex with minors is not allowed. But the underlying belief on the core of everything was God loves sex. Sex is never wrong under any situations, which also meant there's no such thing as rape or abuse or assault if you're doing it all for love. And so, of course, you know, I think it very much depends on who you are. And I I bring people into this a little bit, hopefully not too traumatizing in my book, but I was the daughter of a teenager. So I was a very unprotected kid, even within this group. And as we probably all know, predators know to look for certain kids. So even, you know, I think it's, it's important that even in the cults, different kids had very different experiences. And a lot of kids learned very early to just shut up and go along and keep their heads down. And interestingly enough, that's what they tell you to do to survive army basic training. (laughs) is uh is never stand out um and I was never good at being quiet putting my head down and not standing out and so I think which is an interesting thing you find of those of us that speak out and write our books um is we were usually the ones always asking why and then getting hit for it and then finally learning that in the outside world we could ask why yes the squeaky wheels within a cult are the most mistreated. Usually they are the ones who have this critical thinking that is just bursting out of them. They can't contain it. They need to understand. They need to question. They need to make sense of things. They need to have a voice. They need to not just go along with status quo. And yes, then they pay a price for it. And those are also the ones who usually get out sooner, but not without a lot of trauma, additional trauma because of it. It's a double-edged sword, although it's still best to get out sooner than later, but to know that you have to go through the fire in order to get there. And once you're out, what's nice too, I mean, part of the reason that I put together this podcast is for people to know they're not alone in this so that you can then connect with other people who have been through something similar because otherwise this this whole realm is very isolating. You know, I'm wondering also just going back to something, well, a couple of things that you were saying. I think it was having an hour or so with your parents. I'm assuming there were still things that you couldn't talk about, that you couldn't talk about being unhappy or that you didn't like something about being there. Were you worried about sharing information with your parents or that it would be reported back? I mean, you just never would. You know, I think the The hard thing for anyone that had a quote unquote normal childhood is you don't have that relationship with your parents when you only see them for an hour a day, you know? So I loved my mom. I thought she was magical and perfect. And I have a wonderful relationship with her these days. But 
you couldn't, even if you did say something to your parents, which nobody would. We didn't talk about the abuse with each other. We didn't talk about the abuse with our parents. Um, I think studying group dynamics, like I compare this part of it to like North Korean prison camps because organizations are great at making you loyal to the organization over each other and toxic organizations then abuse that. And so you never knew if you told your friend some doubt, right, then that was going to get reported up and you were going to get in more trouble for it. And so I think we all lived in that balance. And then I also don't think our parents would have known. They would have just told us to get the victory and quoted Bible verses at us. And, you know, many, many kids did get that when you talked about the the depression or you can't tell your parents that you're not feeling happy. You see this honestly a lot with military children. Like, there's no option. Like, mommy and daddy got to go to the army. So you just got to be happy and get on with it. And so there was very much that attitude in it. I think, you know, what you said earlier was so interesting because when you're raising kids in cults, you know, I heard this, somebody said this, like a cult, any, any group, you know, they start off with good reasons, like a good mission, like go save the world for Jesus. Internally, the logic breaks down and from the outside, that's obvious, but the children growing up in that, like children have great bullshit detectors. And so this brings us back to being the squeaky wheel, wheel children, you know, and I think there was definitely a huge percent of us that just never like, we were not cult survivors. We were just pris- prisoners in the cult for however many years it took us to get out because we always knew like, nope, this is not the thing. So I just have to survive this and get through it until I can get out. But then, yeah, you do sort of, you know, immediately become a teenager in the margins of America or wherever you land who doesn't know how to navigate and is completely unprotected on the outside as well. So it's a a, a traumatic experience is a good uh, description for even getting away from the cult. Right. And, and just also as you're talking about it, when you were saying there was no such thing as rape, abuse and assault, I wrote down what you said here, when it's done with love or for love, I find that, I mean, so, so disorienting, so debilitating on so many levels that you endured all of that, but that it wasn't called what it was. And so then when you're talking about being traumatized, so often I see people coming out of situations, having the symptoms of trauma and not knowing why, because they don't know they were abused because it wasn't called that. And they don't know they were raped. It wasn't called that. And so they won't go to a rape crisis center because they weren't raped. They were shown love or they weren't beaten. They got what they deserved or what was helping keep them in line or keep them in favor with God or whatever other justification and language around it. And so it's so important to get the definitions and to get the language to describe what happened to you. And once that happens, then there can be a whole cascade of emotion that comes with it and why people let that happen to you and why people would do that to you. But also then you start to be able to get the help that you need and also understand why you're having certain symptoms because of what you went through. I will do you one better. It wasn't even until two years after I left the cult that I realized I grew up in a cult. Anyone that's heard of the children of God might know about in 2005, we had our, we had our murder suicide, um, which fortunately was just involved two people 
and the founder's son who killed one of his abusers and then took his own life. And I was 17 in high school. I had already spent two years struggling, right? I had already chosen to leave, quote, the family, quote, and get on with my life. And I'm standing there watching it on the news going, oh, I grew up in a cult. Oh, no wonder we talked so much about how we weren't a cult. Like, oh, you know, just that, right? Just having that knowledge. And then I literally went back to high school two days later and I was supposed to write a college entrance essay that I wasn't planning to go to college right away because I didn't know how. And I had to write the essay called What Makes You Different? And I was like, oh, I grew up in a cult. And I got a lot of scholarships to go to college. And so it's like literally what you said, right? Just having those words. But, and then, you know, my process was, I, it wasn't until I was 24 years old in Afghanistan, being completely re-triggered and re-surrounded by basically everything negative from my childhood that I had fought to overcome. And now I'm back in a very sexually violent environment for women being deployed in Kandahar that was the first time I was ever even able to make the connections and start voicing like, oh, you know, because I was raped as a child, this is why I'm having this. And just saying that the first time was just so hard. Like, it, it, it seems so obvious now. But when that's all you know, and that's the only world you have, you don't know. You just don't know. You don't know exactly. And I and I want to say too, and I was just noticing ages here and kind of the interesting, the juxtaposition, and I think kind of the beauty and the meaning of it, that your mom was 15 when she had you and you were 15 when you left. And I love that because I think it's so significant to be at the same age that something happened and was really forced upon your mother at that time, even before you were born, but previous children. But then at that moment, that was the time that you had just had enough and you were done. And I'm wondering, I want to be able to go towards what you were just saying about Kandahar. Of course, there's a lot to talk about there. Can you just tell us first about how you left and why at age 15, what was happening for you then that made you feel able or strong or brave enough to leave? First thing to know about me is when I was six, I for sure decided it was all BS. And when I was 11, I decided to start like making my plan to basically be an evil backslider and go live in the system and not be in this cult anymore. But I didn't think I had any chance until I was 18 because I don't have family. So most of my second generation friends who are all my age, they could leave as teenagers and their grandparents were really happy to have them because they had lost their own kids to a cult 20 to 40 years before and now had these grandkids that they didn't know coming back. My grandfather's the leadership. So I didn't have that. And so I just thought I had to hold it together till I was 18. And when I was 14 and 15, we were living in Mexico in communes. And I was, again, having really bad, sexually violent things happening to me. And I was, I mean, I think so many of us were suicidal from a very young age. But I was, I was reaching a crescendo that was very apparently going to happen before the age of 18. And I realized... I don't think I realized how to talk about it 
till recently, but I realized that if they thought there was hope for you, they would try to save you, usually in very harsh ways, like exorcisms. But if they thought you were the actual devil or antichrist, they would just try to get rid of you before you poisoned everyone else. So I had to like do something really big and really bad. And I did, uh, which was just sexual activity with someone outside the cult, um, which they will immediately just get rid of you for. And my mom at the time, but a big part of this was the fact that I was 15. So when you talk about the symmetry, 15 is what I call indoctrination year. So at 16, you would become a full adult, which the biggest thing that meant is anyone who wanted could have sex with you. Um, And you spent a whole year doing additional readings and like really getting indoctrinated into all the, the cult within the cult secret grown-up doctrines. My mom happened to be the one giving us the adult assigned to do the readings with the group of 15-year-olds. And I think at one point I was like horsing around, you know, wrestling someone, being a 15-year-old. And she kind of said to me, hey, you need to calm down. You know, you're going to be having your own kids soon. And I was shocked. And I think she saw the shock and she got shocked. And you know, my mom grew up with it all too. And it took her 40 years to get away and to realize and um, to get all her kids out. But she realized after that. And so when I blew things up, um, but I was still too afraid to go out on my own. And my parents were trying to find anyone willing to take me and they found an older stepsister. But the process of being kicked out of everything you know and losing your entire world at 15 is still scary and difficult, even if you want it or even if what you're trading from is so much worse. And I was losing, you know, other cultures. Like I was going to a country I didn't even know, even though it's technically the country that I am from. And I was scared and I didn't think I was going to do it. I thought I was just going to move to a different commune and recommit. And my mom took me out somewhere where nobody could hear and was like, go, go now. Like, it's not too late. You don't have kids. Like, you're not happy here, you know? And and she has told me recently, she was like, you were not happy. You were so miserable. She was still a true believer, but she knew that I needed to be gone. And she knew that even though, you know, she believed I was going to go to hell and she was going to lose me forever. She was strong enough to still encourage me to leave, which I think is not only symmetric, but very beautiful. Yes, it is beautiful. It is almost entirely unique also, because you don't hear about those stories very much at all, where a parent helps to sort of swing the gates open to freedom, even with the fears that she's been indoctrinated to believe about what's going to happen to you. She could still see how much you were suffering. I love that there was this very, it seems like a very primal protectiveness, this sense of knowing, of knowing what would be better for you. That's quite incredible. Yeah. You know, and it's been great to see, like she ended up leaving the cult 10 years after me. So when we speak about symmetry, you know, I've been her transition coach pretty much. into the real world. But, you know, she actually got to raise her two youngest kids mostly on her own and outside of the cult. And, you know, getting to see her being a a good mom and a fierce defender of her children. And she has all these unique relationships with us. It's been really great. And it's also, to your point about it being unique, it's 
I think why I was able to write the book that I did and really explore talking about it because we both know that it was not my mom's fault that she was born into this too. And so even though it's, you know, deeply, deeply painful for her, she was able to read my book and to be supportive and we were able to have this conversation and explore it together, even though she still feels pain for what I went through because she's my mother. So that I know is very unique and I feel very lucky to have that situation in my life. That really is really amazing. I think about just the strength that that took and also then the strength that took you to suddenly be in this world that you're supposed to be familiar with, but you're not. And then there are so many things that might not be obvious to a person who hasn't gone through this, but the things that you just didn't know. And so I'm wondering just if you can kind of illuminate for people listening, what are some of the things that you just didn't know that would be commonplace, would be obvious for other people your age at that time? So my favorite one to share is... uh... Well, okay, there's a couple. I showed up to high school to enroll and I'm almost 16 and I have my social security card and my passport. And they're like, yeah, sorry, we can't enroll you in high school. You don't exist. Oh, by the way, if you're not enrolled somewhere in five days, we will have to call the police. So it was like, well, you can't enroll here. Yeah, I didn't know anything about school records, anything. And I, I kind of had to have, you know, I got very lucky that I was living with my stepsister who had a boyfriend who had gone to high school and college and was kind of this, you know, big burly white man used to getting his way in the world um, and said, you know, obviously this American child can go to high school in America and wouldn't take no for an answer until somebody let me in school. So that was the first really fun one. And then once I got into school, I think this one really, uh, shows was that I didn't know what a scantron was or a bubble sheet. So the first test I had to take, I just got it back from the teacher with a zero on top. And I didn't know why I'd failed the test. And he, I'm sure, was just looking at me like, why is this 16-year-old who speaks unaccented English pretending like she doesn't know how to use a scantron? And I didn't because I filled it in with pen and I didn't even know how to ask the right question. And so all of those things, you know, I didn't know what a locker was. I didn't know the dial locks on the lock. I didn't even learn how to do that till I went to basic training because I had no choice. In high school, I just carried a lock with a key because the cipher lock and trying to figure that out and trying to stand there and figure it out while everyone else just looked at me, like I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to have to figure that out. And so, yeah, I guess the answer to that is everything. You know, I remember prior to enrolling in high school telling myself, like, I know I'm having culture shock in the US, but that's because I've never been here before, even though I'm an American. You know, I'm also from Brazil. That's why I'm different. Or I just came here from Mexico. And then they assigned me to the English as a second language homeroom. And I'm like, 
okay, no, it's not that I'm from Mexico, you know, and I, and I'm surrounded from all these kids from Mexico who I loved and I had just come from. So I was comfortable with, but, and then I'm finally walking through the hallways and I hear these teenagers having a conversation and just essentially using logic and having a debate. And I remember realizing, I don't even know how to think like that, or I've never not been punished for thinking like that. And it was still two years before I realized I would, I'd come from a cult, but I realized it's not that I'm from another country. It's that I'm from another planet. Like, I don't know how to do, I'm not prepared for anything in this world because I was raised to be God's end time soldier and die as a martyr by the age of 12. Right. At those ages, you're supposed to know things, but also it's very hard to ask. I mean, if you were in preschool, right, you could say, I don't know how to do this. And the teacher would say, oh, let me help you. Or another student would say, oh, let me help you. But 15, 16, 17, if you say, you know, how do I do this lock for my locker? You're going to open yourself up to criticism or a stare or questioning. And so sometimes people really do suffer alone or have to find their own adaptive skills, like finding a lock with a key where you said, okay, screw it. I'm not going to, not going to want to even have to ask. When I came here in high school, the most terrifying things you could say to me was, where are you from? And what kind of music do you like? Because I didn't have an answer to where you were from. And I didn't know anything about music. And those are two of the first questions that everyone asks you in an American high school. And so it's very alienating. You know, one of the things Americans tend to say to anyone that doesn't know something they think is obvious. Oh, you've never seen Friends before? What, did you grow up in a cult? They will just say that. That's a funny thing we say. Um, Funny enough, later in my life, I realized that that was actually my best friend to just say like, yeah, I grew up in a cult. Teach me. Um, because everyone likes to be an expert and everyone likes to teach you stuff. And also then I don't come off as weird. Whereas like, if I don't explain it, I think that's been the hardest part. And so everyone comes out and like, we've been told, like, we don't belong in the world. The world hates us. The world's full of bad people. You got to hide. Most people that leave the cult immediately go into the cult closet. And they like, we try to pass as normal but we're not. And I spent 10 years doing that. And then I couldn't anymore. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to talk about it. And it's been much better. But you know, it was very, to your point, you know, there was a long time that I wished that I looked more like an immigrant or people's ideas of an immigrant, or that I had an accent or anything that would which now I obviously know would bring its whole own load of baggage along with it. But at the time, you know, really, really struggling to be understood. And everyone stereotypes me as just your blonde American girl next door. And I'm not, and I can't even pretend to be. And so I'm not only fighting what I was raised with and what I was given, but what everyone expects me to be also. And so, yeah, you, you, learn to not ask questions. You learn to be very adaptive, I guess, which is the good part. But you also learn to sort of hide your true self and lie to everyone and keep track of what version of what story you've told people so that you can kind of try to fit in everywhere. Which is exhausting. So exhausting. Just exhausting. I refuse yeah. to do it anymore. 
I'm so glad. I'm so glad. For a lot of people, being raised in a very controlled environment where there is this need for perfection and people are watching you and there's a consequence very easily about so many things and there's a need for conformity and having to follow the rules uh, sets people up for a lot of things in their lives and very controlling and or abusive relationships or environments that feel very similar. And so I know that's part of your story too. So let's talk about that. How did you get involved? And yeah, just go ahead, go for it. Pretty much everything you mentioned fed into each other. So I spent six years in between leaving the cult and joining the army. And during those years, I completed high school and college, actually graduated as college valedictorian. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Finally had teachers listen to me and answer my questions and I just did everything they wanted. Um, (laughs) I was a little intense, little intense, but you know, I also was very lonely during this time because I never really figured out how to deal with people. And I kind of hung out with my books and I had some pretty toxic relationships, including one that is detailed in my book. And that toxic relationship turned into a marriage and turned into me joining the army. And I think a lot of things came together, but I ended up married to this guy because I was so worried about being alone that I married this guy who was clearly trying to escape a lot of things in his own head too. And he joined the army and I was then stuck sort of looking at like, I've just fought all this to get my life. And I was college valedictorian. And now what I'm going to be an English teacher following this guy around or an army life. Um, No, I'm not going to do that. I'll join the army too. And he was into it because it fit his pattern of toxicity. You know, I also obviously didn't tell myself that at the time. So I crafted this whole story for myself, how it was And I think all of these things are true, but how it was because of my identity and how lucky I felt to have been born an American to a 15 year old in the Philippines in a cult that I was still able to come back here and put my life together. And so I was like, no, I'm doing this for patriotism. Oh, I'm doing this because I don't know what else to do because I need a group. I need a support. You know, I saw that later. And then finally, I think I was able to see and write about the uh, the toxic relationship that really pulled me in to another career, which was both wonderful and awful. And I'm happy to talk about all of it. That would be great. If you want to talk about all of it, there's an interesting memory that I'm having now as you're talking about somebody who came to talk to me about his experiences in a group called Uh, the Boston Church of Christ, which grew to become the International Church of Christ, the ICC, ICOC, originally started by a man named Kip McKean, who then left after there was a lot of uh, a lot of allegations of different things. And of course, has started his own group. He came to me to talk about how he realized he was in a cult because he was in Afghanistan and suddenly he realized he felt safer there than in his group. And one of the things that happened for him was because he didn't feel like anyone really could be trusted as a friend in the group, that people were to 
to tell on each other, to rat each other out, you know, to, I guess everyone's jockeying for position and to be in good favor of the leader. And sometimes that means siphoning information to the leader. And when he heard his commanding officer talking about how they're all responsible for each other and how they're a team and how they can't leave anyone behind, he thought there's something certainly wrong with the way I was raised. He had this moment where he thought it shouldn't be that here I am, across the world in a war zone, feeling safer somehow than the group that I was raised in. What was wrong with that? And that helped him kind of have insight, but also he saw how easy it was for him to just go along to get along and not complain and just do what he was told. So it's very interesting, the insights we get when we go into situations. And I'm curious to hear more about yours. So what was it like for you? Yeah. So, you know, my book opens with this as the prologue, right? And I'm in basic training and it's the first day and I I signed up as an officer, but through a direct commission program. So I still go on the bus to basic training like everyone else. And one of the first things they do, you get there and you have this bag of gear. It's like 50 pounds duffel bag and you have to like hold it above your head for two or three hours while they're just yelling at you. And it's a physically impossible. No one can do it. It's completely irrational because no human being would ever just go outside and hold 50 pounds above their head for several hours. And as I was experiencing this, it hit me because it was the familiarity, right? It was like, oh, I just joined another cult. Okay, I got this. And, you know, the interesting thing is like, as soon as I say that, people really get their hackles up. And especially when you're talking about the U.S. Army, which we worship, but I'm not even saying, like, I'm not putting a value connotation on it at all. I'm doing a master's in essentially group behavior now. And it's like the structure, you know, people are like, oh, well, but in the Army, you have to program people. Like, okay. I'm just commenting on the similarity, right? We're taking people whose human nature is going to be to run away from bullets and we are trying to break them down and reprogram them and get them to run towards bullets and get them to bond to their teammates and get them to choose loyalty to the group and the country and program them with music and chanting and group experiences. That's all of my basic training is. but you know, what I think is so significant about that duffel bag experience is cults do this, total control groups do this all the time. It's like the first time you do that one extreme irrational thing, because the group telling you to do it, I suspect that that's when you lose the ability to really think critically about it, things in the future. Because like, that was our moment in basic training to be like, nope, this is dumb, I'm going home. Or to be like, I give up my identity as a civilian and I am now a soldier. I have passed through the portal. And, you know, no matter how long I'm out of the army now, I'm always going to be a veteran. Like that changed my identity in the same way that cults do. You go by a new name because most of us have been called by our last names before, right? In the same way that cults do. And you go through this programming. So like those to me are the parallels that I think are sort of important and worth thinking about. And then the other thing I would say is I absolutely agree with the the camaraderie part 
of the army being super strong and super amazing, but cults do that too. You know, so I always say cults do some things right and group and mission and focus and energy and all those things is part of it. And those of us that are cult survivors, we spend the rest of our lives chasing that level of connection. So do veterans. I actually haven't found a single thing that applies to cult survivors that doesn't apply to U.S. military veterans. So it's a very similar experience. And then, you know, my big caveat, different from what the man who was speaking to you says, is that as a woman, I felt very, very unsafe in the army rather than feeling safe. Um, And I do talk about this a little bit in my book or a lot. It's It's a big theme in my book. But, you know, I was going out. I was the only woman being sent out on patrols with like 25 combat arms guys. And this team was amazing. Like it was the most brother, sister, being part of a a unit that I ever had in my six and a half years. But I got pulled aside and warned by at least three senior officers to watch my back while on patrol. And that, that right there is rape culture. You don't have to say anything else. Why did we think the 25 American soldiers were going to simultaneously lose their minds while out in Taliban country and decide to assault an officer? We know the culture is damaging, but as long as we say we're here for the good and we care about leadership, we can thought stop all those questions. Um, in, in the same way that cults do. Right. And it's more of the same of warning the woman rather than stopping the men. That's definitely how it is. And that's still how it is. You know, to me, when you look at sexual assault in the cult, that's where you really see parallels. The cult cared the most about keeping the outside world out. So it didn't matter how dedicated you were. If you're a problem, you have to be dealt with or you have to go. The military cares the most about successful operations. And so anytime a soldier breaks a law or a rule, that soldier's gone. But when breaking the law or the rule is assaulting another soldier, the logic breaks down and the assaulted soldier becomes the problem that they have to deal with. So you got to go. And that's kind of because operations is the most important. I really do think like so many of these total control groups, you can boil it down to one thing, you know, and the call we had to love. Jesus and martyrdom for Jesus. The military, you have to love dying for your country. They will sacrifice everything they want to talk about for culture on the altar of successful operations instead of realizing maybe if we're good to everyone, we will produce even better things. Maybe the mission of the army shouldn't be winning America's wars and it should be protecting American interests. And if we have 50% women, we might do that without killing humans. You know, there's so much in there, but it's the, the cult think, regardless of the goodness or badness of the organization, group think, I think is just always so much stronger than individuals. And so when you're in these total control groups, it's almost impossible to act outside of them or even make significant change unless you're right at the top. It's so interesting. So I'm curious to hear more about your experience, but I mean, you were there for quite some time. I'm wondering if you felt because of your childhood experiences too, that you approach things in a different way or some things didn't bother you that bothered other people or vice versa. Definitely. You know, I realized on day one that 
I was joining another cult and they were going to program. And so one thing I will say is even realizing that you can't stop yourself from being programmed. But I was able to, I think, like draw some lines in the sand, right? About what areas I wouldn't let myself cross. Like the racism and the xenophobia in the army is so bad. You know, it always is with soldiers, right? Like you have to hate the other person if you're going to kill them. At least that's the logic. And I just tried to refuse to let myself feel that, right? So I spent a lot of time humanizing Afghans to myself, to my team, to people around me, because I'm not going to let myself get into us versus them mentality, which is such a tool of dictators and, and cult leaders and all of that. And then another thing was just sort of like the things that people think are hard in the army aren't hard if you've been through things other than certain things, right? Like losing friends in battle, which I did, you know. When we first got to, to Kandahar and everyone's freaking out of these are the conditions, almost slum-like conditions that we have to live in for a year, these conditions aren't that different to what I grew up in. And certainly not to like the slums of Brazil that I have spent my childhood doing quote unquote missionary work in. So a lot of those things were easier for me. Anything physical that's thought of as really hard in the army was you know, I can, I can survive anything. I've done it before. So that part I think was, was easier for me. And then just quite generally, like, I just had to click back into, oh, I was born a soldier. Like I've been, I've been out for six years getting an education and learning about the world. And now I'm going back to being a soldier again. And, you know, so where in like training scenarios or even deployed, we always had roommates. We always had to have the buddy system the same way the cult did. And people would talk about like, oh my God, I can't wait to just get out of here and be by myself. And I think I just, I don't even have that. I actually probably have to learn that more. But, you know, I never had my own room till I went to college. And so in basic training, that was one of the hardest things for the average trainee was you don't get alone time. You don't get to own your own mind. And for me, that was just familiar. And I was able to just be like, okay, cool, and go along to get along. And that's what you need to do. And that makes you successful. Right. There was a man I'm on this show, Chris Buckley, who became a white supremacist. And he was sort of this number two guy under a grand wizard. And he says part of the reason that that happened was because of his army training that he had learned, first of all, to be aggressive and forceful. He also had had a very good friend in the army killed by someone who is Muslim because that's what they were there to do to each other, really. And he was so conditioned and indoctrinated to have hatred, but just searing hatred without seeing the humanity in the other person or that they were human really at all. And so he came back and it really turned him into this sort of militant, xenophobic human being that he he is now no longer, but he could see how much the army played a role in him becoming that way. It's really interesting. I think people don't realize that. Since your podcast is called Indoctrination and you follow a lot of this stuff, did you hear about a, a white supremacist who was a major in the army? He got kicked out a few months ago named William Jeffrey Poole. He was a major in the army. He got radicalized into white supremacy and he got caught and he got kicked out. 
And at the end of my book, you will find out that is the guy I married in college. And my next book is going to be exploring a lot of that because um, I found out about this literally a few days before I got my current book deal. But it is exactly what you said, right? It is exactly, first of all, I've had to ask myself a lot of really ugly questions about why that extremism drew me in. You know, I was a 19-year-old just out of a cult that got pulled into toxic relationship, but I think also extremist ideology that he was already starting to pick up called to me because it was familiar in ways that I don't even now realize. But, you know, when it was found out that he was a major in the army, the army's response was like, oh my God, how did this guy get up our ranks? And I just look at them like, you select for toxic, angry masculinity, and that's what you promote. So of course, that he was the perfect officer until it was found out that he was this online, hateful, violent white supremacist. And when we come down to January 6th, you know, I could not get anyone to touch my book that put a religious cult in the U.S. Army in the same memoir until January 6th, when 20% of the domestic terrorists attacking the Capitol were veterans. And I'll tell you what, Rachel, we knew veterans watching that day. We knew because that guy who had his Ziplocs dangling down, those are handcuffs. That's what we use for handcuffs in the military. So we knew that guy was a veteran as we were watching it live time. We didn't know he was a lieutenant colonel two ranks away from general, but we knew he was a veteran. You know, when we see that, I think it really comes down to, and, and as a nation, we really need to ask ourselves this, but especially in the military, you know, we radicalize and we train humans to conduct violence on behalf of state. That is what the military does when you really boil it down to it. And when, when I started my work and talking about all this, people would say to me, well, the cult was obviously evil but the U.S. Army is a wonderful organization. And I think it says something that I got all the way to war as an intelligence officer, thinking about the good guys I was going to protect, not thinking about the bad guys I was going to help kill, right? And that, that surprised me in war. Um, we, we are so good at radicalizing you into violence and loving killing and programming that into you with cadences and with everything we talk about but also diverting your attention away with patriotism and with flags and with songs and with uniform and with group camaraderie. And then don't do anything to de-radicalize and de-escalate the violence afterwards. And especially for veterans that get out and then they're feeling lost and they're feeling like they can't fit back into the world and they are feeling exactly like the cult survivors. And then they find these groups of extremist rhetoric and everybody likes people that look and sound and think just like them. And everyone likes to sort of live in the black and white, right? It's very comfortable. And, and it's, it's very easy to get drawn in. And, you know, in a way, I think fortunately due to January 6th that made everyone have to wake up and pay attention, military leaders are really starting to ask that what, right now. Like, why, why is the extremism so hard? Or, or so represented at such high levels in the military. And I just don't think anyone wants to look at the answer being group behavior and programming and violence 
is absolutely going to lead to this unless we start to deal with it and walk down that path. I agree. And I didn't have, I mean, admittedly, I didn't have an insight about that. Although I did know that there are so many people who come home from their time serving our country and they are shell-shocked and the Veterans Administration only does so much and sometimes too little. And so you have these walking wounded emotionally and physically who feel also abandoned by their country. And so I know also going back to this Chris Buckley interview, he's now involved in an organization called Parents for Peace, which is this sort of counter extremism group. But he said that a lot of people really felt betrayed by their own country. And then it didn't, they didn't mind storming the Capitol because the Capitol didn't represent them anymore and didn't, didn't represent protection. And the love of their country had really worn off. And so there was no trust anymore, too. It was sort of this perfect storm. Two things so interesting that I think you mentioned is one, that the active duty military really demonizes medical care, especially mental health medical care, in very similar ways to the cult that I grew up in. And that was noticeable to me. And that was something that I think like these total control groups, again, have to do. People aren't trying to demonize it on purpose, but by definition, seeking medical care makes you an individual. And so when you have to seek medical care, you are putting your own needs above the group and you're never supposed to do that in the army. And so it becomes demonized by group norms and mental health is extremely on the top of that. So we are wading into war, one of the most psychologically damaging experiences for a human. And then we can't get healthcare for it because that's demonized by the group. And then when it talks about, you know, going out to the country, you know, we're just, we're, we're not preparing people. We don't talk about it and we don't look at it as this, this programming. Like you were, you were owned to a certain level for however many years you were in, you were not able to make your own choices and that's going to have a repercussion. Right. Okay. There's this other part that I think a lot of people don't necessarily talk about, but I think it's not that I'm, you know, saying something that is at all critical of people who have been involved in cultic groups because they've been programmed, but there is sometimes a sense of us versus them and, you know, this very black and white thinking and also kind of a superiority that can take place also where people can feel that they are either entitled to treat people a certain way or that they're above others. And it's a very uncomfortable thing for people when they come out to kind of admit. And there's also this dichotomy because sometimes people feel so beaten down because they have been beaten down that they feel less than, but also above. And so it's hard to kind of look at people, I think, in the eye and feel that you really are on the same playing field. And I think that that also is sort of woven into army life. Again, this is one of those parallels. And I I think it's something that we really do a disservice to veterans in is just the deification of the military and the deification, I call it the cult of the veteran, right? And this idea that like, because you signed up, come on, like we signed up for jobs. It's a job. We chose our job. There are plenty of jobs that can be seen as heroic, like 
nurses in times of COVID, but we signed up for a job. It doesn't make us better than anyone else, but the country, you know, sort of very differently from in Vietnam era, like the country sort of like, you have to worship veterans right now. Like you say you're a veteran and immediately you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be worshiped usually unless you don't fit the stereotype of tall, white, blonde, and male. Um, but you're supposed to be worshipped and the country's supposed to give you all this stuff. And it's it's very interesting because we look at it when we see cults pop up, which happened a lot in the 60s and 70s. It's happening a lot again now. And it's always in times of severe social reorganizing. And I think what you said was so impactful. It's usually when people are realizing that the promises of society, the societal systems that they've bought into are not going to play out. And then they get angry and they start looking for something else. And you see those people go to cults and you see those people, a lot of those people are veterans coming out into the world and they were promised that the world was going to love them because they were veterans and people were going to just hand them jobs and it was going to be an easy experience. And of course it's not because it's a transition and transition is always hard. And so the anger and the rage and the, I need to go find myself a new mission and a new purpose and new people that are going to love me. And especially if this thing that makes me special is my military service, then I need to double down into that. And that's where I see like the pipeline from veterans who were, and I, I mean, I have a friend who was a very good friend who is now just completely radicalized and I can't touch that. Because there's this pipeline, I think, from military service into what we're all looking for, which is our new sense of purpose, our new group, our new team. It's really interesting. And this is not to say, because, you know, we're not black and white thinkers, this is not to say that that everything is bad with the military and soldiers uh, are all the same. But I do also remember talking to someone who is homeless. He wished he could have been at the insurrection, but he didn't have the money for a ticket because he's homeless. That's a whole other level of wrong, right? (laughs) Okay. First, I understand then really why you want to go and fight and be against what's happening and stand up for things. And you can't even get there because you have no money because you have no job, but you were in the army. Um, It's just so multi-layered. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so one of the things just about what you said real fast is that it's absolutely not black and white. And I am a super proud veteran. I am a proud daughter of the 101st. I have a medal from President Obama. Like, I I love it. And I think that's actually one of the cool things I do in my book is, you know, military women have kind of always been made to pick a side when they decide to tell their life stories. Like, are you for us or against us? And I'm like, no, sorry, you don't get to make me choose. I'm both, right? Like, I am proud of my deployment. I'm also pretty upset that I got raped on my deployment and wasn't able to report it or be reported. And we get to, as you know, we get to do both, right? Like, we get to choose our identities. We get to live in the gray. We, I think, as a society, actually need to stop putting this pressure on veterans that like, oh, you're a veteran you're a perfect person, right? That the person on a pedestal is in a prison. So it's not freeing. It's not easier. And, you know, in my experience and any veterans that might be listening or cult survivors that might be listening, going through this transition, you know, it's, 
take a breath, realize that it doesn't have to be either or it doesn't have to be my experience was all good or all bad, you know, as most soldiers can tell you, like, there's a lot of great, great moments wrapped around a lot of really not great moments. And it's okay. I think it's okay for us to, to live with both. Coming full circle here, and I know we need to finish up. I would love for people to know more about your book and what you're doing. And if there's a way to kind of be in touch with you or a website, now's the time. Let us know. So my book is called Uncultured. It's coming out next fall, coming out through St. Martin's Press. There is an official like book space for it on Goodreads. So if anyone uses that app for their book list, you can Google Uncultured on Goodreads and look me up. I'm on Twitter, Daniela M. Young on Twitter, which is where I'm the most active and people can at this point easily get me in a conversation on Twitter. And then I have a website called uncultureyourself.com where people can also go and find out more about me and my books and different projects. I have some some paintings that I did of women and girls going through trauma that'll be on there that I did as I was writing my book that I think speak to a lot of people. So yeah, and I love getting in touch with or I love hearing from anyone who, you know, like you said, Rachel, it's so important for us to know that there are other people out there that have had abusive or traumatic experiences, knowing that there are other people out there or sometimes hearing someone else's story and realizing, oh, that happened to me too. Now I have the rhetoric to talk about it, I think can be so powerful. So I would love for anyone to reach out to me. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story. And uh, it was very nice to meet you. Great to meet you too. And thank you so much, Rachel, for inviting me on your awesome show. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. One more thing before you go. I am so moved by Daniela's story, as I'm sure you were too. You can only imagine or maybe can't even imagine what her childhood was like. And as Daniela and I spoke about, actually, one of my first clients was a woman who had raised eight children in the children of God. When you're first starting to become a therapist, (laughs) they don't teach you about this stuff in school, that you're going to have someone who's going to walk into your office and say, hi, I actually got involved in a group and my body was used to recruit others and to keep the members of the group happy and the elderly leader happy. And I had eight children. I did not have a chance to use any birth control. I gave birth in many different countries and sometimes lived in horrible conditions. I had no rights. I had no say. I was abused. I was neglected, but I could never talk about it that way. I was supposed to be so happy to be a part of this group. Can you help me? I will try to do my best to help you. But that, I think she was my second cult-related client in my life. So a lot of the work that I do at the beginning was trial by fire, where I just needed to do my own research, find out about the group, talk to other people who had left, hear her story, and know that she had been through much more as with most of the people I meet, than she led on. A lot of people who have been through so much hold themselves together pretty well. 
And when they don't, they feel shame. Like somehow they're supposed to have it all together and show something to the outside world like they have it all together. This group is one that makes people's blood boil. It makes their skin crawl. And they were so flagrant about the abuses. And there have been so many people who have been suicidal in this group, not just the people who have been abused, but the people who couldn't stop the abuse from happening to the people they loved. And many people I work with who have gone into sex work or being a stripper, et cetera, were people who were raised in groups like this, where that's the only talent, commodity, value they think they had. One of the things that I want to make sure to mention with Daniela and some of the things that she said was the use of language. Now, I know we've talked about language in the past, about being in particular groups and how they changed the language. But one of the things that is so powerful about the things she said is that there was no such thing as rape or abuse, assault, no such thing. It was all, quote unquote, done for love. And everything they did, no matter what it was, was called somehow a mission, no matter how unimportant it was, no matter how menial or how degrading, it was part of the mission. So you weren't supposed to somehow feel bad or you weren't supposed to feel like somehow you're wasting your life doing this. But something that she said that is really stuck with me is this idea of mainstream life being a second language. And it is for so many people who don't know where to go to school to learn the language of mainstream life because there aren't English as a second language classes for people who have been raised on cult speak who have been raised outside of any kind of environment, who have not known how to just live life. And at some point in their lives, when they become adults, they feel it's too late to ask or it's too embarrassing to ask. But when you don't know the social norms and you don't know how to conduct yourself and you don't know how much to share in a conversation and you don't know sometimes even how to handle money, you don't know how to care for your own physical needs, you don't know how to call for a doctor because you weren't ever allowed to get medical care. You don't know how to raise a child because the models that you saw were awful. You don't know that you matter. You don't know that you have rights. There's a constitution. And in every country, people have a different amount of rights. But often there is something there in place to protect you. You don't know that. You have to learn it like it's a second language, no matter where you live, no matter what that language is, whether it's English or any other language. So know that you can get there if you ask. Know that you can get there also if you surround yourself with people who don't shame you for asking the question, who are more than happy to guide you, who are more than happy to teach you life as a second language. Just make sure to connect with people who are healthy models for that, who teach you not only about life as a second language, but good life, healthy life. It was great to speak with Daniela, and I wish her well. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at 
underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.